we are nearing. Uh, there is one more sermon on John 17. It's sort of a summary, uh, one that I've committed to preach uh, when I began the sermon. I think it helps to answer a good question that is often asked about John 17, but that'll be next week, Lord willing. This morning, we're about to finish our study of the verses proper in John 17, this remarkable, remarkable chapter that tangibly demonstrates what the writer to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews says in chapter 7, as he wrote of the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ over the priests of the Old Covenant. You may remember, I'm sure, these words. We began our study of this chapter with them, but he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here in John 17, we're told the substance of what that intercession is. What is he praying for us? And in the last section of this prayer, there are three, you'll remember, but in this last section, he prays really three things for us. And I say for us, because if you'll look again at verse 26, I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for all of those who would believe in me through their witness, through their word. We've worked our way through two of them already, to be united as one, that is a central part of this prayer for us, for his church, that his church would be one, even as God has made us one already in Christ that we would see the glory of Christ. He desires and longs, as we saw last week, that we would be with him in glory, that we would ourselves be glorified and see with new eyes his glory. And now this morning, we're looking at the third of these requests in verses 25 and 26. And I should say also mentioned in passing, and we noted it at the time in verse 23, that is that we might know the love of God. Now we come this morning to the final of these three, that we would know the love of God, and in doing so, we're going to read the whole section again, verse 20 through 26, and I would ask that you would please stand as we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word, John 17, verse 20 through 26. This is God's word. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Now we pray that your spirit, the author of this word, would be the one who now teaches us and presses upon our hearts the truths herein contained. For here we hear our Savior praying for us. May all that he prayed for continue to be known to us. And may we receive it with joy, we pray, and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I learned this week, and we all learn, right, every week when we're looking things up. I learned this week that the very familiar childhood game, He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not, is likely of French origin from around the early 19th century or even before. Now, most of you know how it's played. When you hold a flower, usually a rose or a daisy, you stand with the flower in your hand and you begin to pluck the petals one by one. And as you pluck one petal, you say, he loves me or she loves me. You pluck the second, he loves me not or she loves me not. And you go on until all the petals are gone and the last petal you pluck and whatever you say at that petal is how the intended uh, person of your interest feels about you. Nobody likes to end up, he loves me not. If there's someone we're interested in and usually as children, it's kind of a silly game, right? I'd be curious, no show of hands, how many have done that? Maybe you did that even with your current spouse that you're sitting next to long before you were married, wondering whether that person really loves you the way you felt you loved them. It is a silly game, but it's sad, in my mind at least, that there are many Christians who happen to think of the love of God just that way. They don't hold flowers and pluck petals from them, but they wonder day in and day out from perhaps one day to the next whether he loves me when I'm doing well in my devotions and overall Christian life, when all is going well generally for me, when I do good things. Does he love me? Or he loves me not, when things aren't going well at all, when I'm suffering, perhaps facing persecution, or when I sin. Is that really how we're to understand the love that God has towards us? Like a child's game, whether one day to the next he may love me or he may love me not. And can we ever really be sure that he loves us at all? Are we left always wondering at any moment in any given day whether God really loves me in the midst of whatever it is that we happen to be going through at this time? My hope this morning, as I've uh, sort of given you a preview of my uh, inadequacy to really go through this with any great hope apart from God's blessing, that we will ourselves be blessed by his word in this way, it's to simply pray the same prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that was read earlier, that we may have strength together to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That was Paul's sincere prayer for the believers in Ephesus, and it's mine this morning with you as I've studied this week and have come in some ways to know more deeply of this love of the Father that he has for me personally and that he has for all of those who are in Christ. To make it easy, I just want to give you two points, not three, so I'm leaving the traditional pattern, giving you two points from these verses, 25 and 26, which are the verses that are before us this morning. And the first is simply this, making the Father known. Making the Father known. Now, this relates, I assure you, to the love of God, because what Jesus is ultimately doing is making known to us the Father's love for us in him. But it's important for us to see in this prayer that Jesus, in verse 25, in sort of a summary way, he deals with many of the issues he's already dealt with in the prayer. It's sort of a summation of his whole prayer as he brings it to a conclusion. But his focus seems to be on the importance that his whole life and ministry was that the Father, through him, through his work, would be made known, first to his own disciples, and then to those who, through their witness and word, would bring the truth of Christ to the world. If you have seen me, he said earlier in John's gospel, and he told his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Remember those words from his interaction with his disciples, especially Philip, who said to him in John 14, Lord, he said, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. We simply want to see the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the very language of his prayer in John 17, that they may know this, that they may understand it, and that they may be in us. The words, Jesus went on to say, that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, in his prayer here in verse 25, speaks again, as he did earlier, about making the Father known. Look at verse 26, or actually verse 25. The world does not know you. I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. How is it that they know him? Verse 6, I have made known to them by the word who you are. I made known to them your name, verse 26, and I will continue to make it known. No doubt a reference to the uh, events that will happen immediately after this prayer that he prays. Through his suffering, through his labor under the wrath of God, he will make known the Father. That is Jesus' whole intent as he came to make known the Father to those whom the Father has given to him. 
That's why I believe the introduction or the title in verse 25 is so important. He says, O righteous Father. It's a very interesting address that Jesus uses. You'll remember that when he prayed for his disciples, those, uh, that small band that the Lord had given to him, and I think by implication for all of us, he prayed in verses 6 through 19. Ultimately, the end of that tells us what his aim is, that they would be sanctified by the truth. And with that, in the beginning of those verses, he refers to his father as Holy Father. Because he knows he's going to be praying for their sanctification. They're being set apart. Holy Father, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. And so in these two final verses, the Lord is focused once again on the world which does not know the Father, coming to believe that the Father has sent the Son. That's what he desires, that the world would know that he is sent from God the Father, that the world would know through his disciples that the Father sent Jesus. When you think of holiness, it has to do with the, the character of God, the character and being of God. He is in himself three times, Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy. Righteousness is that which flows out of his character of holiness. He is righteous in all uh, that he does. Rejoice in all your works, we sing. His works are works of righteousness because he himself is holy. And so as he comes to the end of his prayer, he refers to the father as being a righteous father. And I think, again, it's interesting because the righteousness of God will be revealed in everything that follows after this prayer. You see, that's the way the Bible understands the work of Christ on the cross. It's the righteous work of God. This is not a, a God angry at his son who seeks to punish him. This is not a God who is just flying off the handle in anger. This is a God whose works, every one of them, are righteous. And the most righteous work he has ever done is the work that he accomplished through his son uh, on the cross. Romans 3.21 puts it this way, speaking of a righteousness that comes from God, but that is a reference to the righteous works of God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has put forward as a propitiation, a wrath satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the righteousness of God set forth before a watching world displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ when he bore our wrath in his own body on the tree. 
And the world, Jesus says, does not know this God. The world does not know you, he says in verse 25. I know you, and these know that know you that you have sent me. What was about to happen in the hours that would follow this prayer was to display the righteousness of God to the world. And the world would mock him. It would spit upon him. It would despise him. But for his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, whom he loved, and for all who would come to believe because of their witness, this is, was the righteousness of God displayed and would become the means of our righteousness before him. So you see why at the end of this prayer he prays the way he does. He addresses the Father the way he does. His desire, his aim in coming was that the world would know that the Father sent him and that through that witness many would come to believe and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us this morning to acknowledge, to see this truth very clearly, that the true knowledge of God is only found only through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no knowledge of God apart from Jesus. No knowledge of who God is, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his love, his compassion, whatever attribute we would highlight Jesus was by his very life making known to them, his disciples, and to the world the character and nature of God in everything that he did. And so we need to understand this. The world stands opposed to God if it stands opposed to Jesus. There, there is no knowledge of God apart from Jesus and his word It is through the word that we come to be set apart in regeneration and faith and repentance. It is in the word that we can become more and more like Jesus, the testimony of who Jesus is. That is impossible outside the person and the knowledge of the person of Jesus. And it also tells us that those who do know God through Jesus will grow in that knowledge of God. He will, he says here, continue to make him known. And he does that now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, as we continue to know and understand who God is. In our studies on Wednesday night, those of you who are able to attend, we're studying in 1 John, very much a parallel to everything we've been studying in John 17 The readers there, the church to whom John is writing, are struggling with false teachers who claim to have a superior, higher knowledge of God. And John, again, as we've noted before, brings it all down to a basic level. He says, here are the marks of those who know God. If you know God, if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. If you love God, you'll love the brethren. And he goes on to talk about the ways in which we know God. It's evidenced in our lives. To know God truly is to love him increasingly and to be conformed more and more to his image. And so in this first point here, we see how important it is that Jesus has come to make the Father known. And that is exactly what he's done in everything that he has accomplished for us, but especially at the cross. That is where the Father, in in all of his majesty, glory, his justice, 
his mercy, his kindness, his love. That is where it is so clearly set forth and displayed to a watching world. Well, that's the first part. It really leads us to the second. And I think the second, of course, is the place where we need to rest and understand even more deeply. The depth of his revelation of who God is is not only his righteousness, his holiness, but also his love, that he has chosen us and he has chosen to set upon us his love. And we are loved, he says in these verses, as Jesus himself is loved by the Father. You'll notice in this final section, in verse 26, the theme of love uh, in this whole final section, 20 through 26, the theme of love is very prominent. Verse 23, love them even as you loved me. He refers to the way the Father has loved him before the foundation of the world in verse 24. And then, of course, in verse 26, he says that he will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I think that's a synonym. To have the love of God in us is to know Jesus and to have Jesus by his spirit living in us. But this emphasis on love is worth noting, bears out in the rest of the scriptures. God himself says that he is love in 1 John 4. He describes himself as love itself, love incarnate in the person of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're told in many places that God demonstrates his love to us in that while we are yet, sin we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love. But here Jesus is saying something that I believe is truly astounding, truly amazing, something that our hearts have trouble, I believe, grasping, at least mine does, that you have loved them, that is, his disciples and all of those who would believe, you and I, as he has loved his only son. J.C. Ryle translates it this way, that Jesus is asking that they may feel in their own hearts a sense of that same love toward them wherewith thou lovest me. That's what Jesus is asking. Dr. Boyce, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, in dealing with this issue uh, that we see both in verse 23 and 26, he calls it a most extraordinary sentence. And he writes this, it means that God's love for us is in the same measure and is exercised in the same way as his love for Christ. He goes on to argue that while there have been many attempts to avoid this meaning because it is so tremendous and unbelievable, nonetheless, it cannot be denied. And that is because of one word in the Greek that we find in verse 23. That word is the Greek word kathos, which means just as or to the same degree as. This means that what we are told is that God loves those who are Christ to the same degree and in the same way that he loves Jesus. 
even where his own son is concerned, God does not love one of his children more than he loves the others. Dr. Boyce goes on, I think, rightly to describe what the love of God the Father for Jesus looks like and identifies it with three very helpful marks of that love. God's love to Jesus is infinite. It knows no limits that can be placed on it. God's love for Jesus is eternal. His love for Jesus is without end because God changes not. And God's love is perfect. His love is a love with wisdom and consistency that always aims at what is best. And we see that love, of course, most clearly displayed at the cross. Infinite, eternal, and perfect love displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And my friends, by that I do not mean for you and for me, but for Jesus. That was the display of his perfect, infinite, eternal love to his son. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Another writer, speaking of this same incredible idea of God's love for us being as the love he has for Jesus, writes this. In John 17, we are invited to listen in as Jesus talks intimately with his father. Thinking as I do that we read the Bible far too quickly, it is not surprising to me, he says, that we have missed something that our Lord prays for and that is more significant than his concern for unity. In verse 23, and repeated again in verse 26, Jesus wants believers to know that however much God the Father loves God the Son, that is how much God the Father loves all of his children. So many of us struggle, he goes on, to accept that God loves us. But we now ought never to struggle with how much God loves us. God loves us all who are in Christ as much as he loves him. Hear this divinely inspired declaration of infinite affection. God loves all true believers as much as he loves his son. Those who are in Christ are loved as much as God loves Christ himself. Is there any better news to be heard? The answer is no. There is no better news to be heard. I think in our lives as a family, we learned about this in interesting ways, and we all do, don't we? But for us, it was clearly seen in the path that we took as a family in adoption. I remember the day very clearly when on March 4th, 2011, we adopted our two youngest boys. Many of you here even today from Village came to share with us in that day. In fact, the judge, I remember, said we've never had so many people in the same room for an adoption. But I especially remember the judge speaking to us about what all of this means to adopt these two boys 
and to bring them, add them to our already existing family of five. In essence, and, and the language was financial language, it was assets, it was proper division of assets, make sure you share them, not with three kids, but five. We understood all of that. But we knew what he was really asking. Will you love these boys as much as you love your other children? That's what he was really asking. And that's where we came to understand, because we said yes. Yes, we will. I hope by God's grace we have. But yes, we will. We won't treat them any differently. We won't show favor to the three biological children more than we will to them. We will love them in the same way we love our own biological children. When God the Father brings us into his forever family through the work of Jesus Christ, his son, that is what is being promised to us. He will love us as he loves his own son. The chapter in our confession on adoption puts it wonderfully in just one paragraph. All of those who are justified... God promises in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry out, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting life. And you see with me and marvel with me in the love that God has for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. It is, in a straightforward way, the very same kind of love to the degree of the love that he has for his one and only son our Lord Jesus Christ. My mind cannot grasp that. I have never been able, which is why I think Paul prays the way he does, to fully understand, even to a basic measure of what that means for me. But this week I have come to see more and more of its marvel, of its wonder, and I hope this morning you have as well, because that is what the Lord tells us here. That is what he prays, that we would know it, that we are loved as he is loved. And he knew what that meant. He knew what that would mean as he went to the cross. So three points as we close out that further apply this and help us understand it. And I think this is part of the emphasis of these last two verses. I think we can't deny this. That once we know this love, it must be a love that then is displayed and lived out. I think that is the aim here, and Jesus makes it very clear in his other teachings. The great aim of the Savior is that knowing this love, as it was true of him who came to reveal the Father and display the Father to the world through his work, so he calls us as those loved in the same way as he is to display that love to a watching world. That is how people come to know him 
and understand the gospel is as we live out that love that we have received in Jesus Christ. And so the disciples knew as they heard this prayer what Jesus would have been referring to. A new commandment, John 13, as he demonstrated by washing their feet. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. For one another. You see, that's the simple outflow of this love. It's not meant to simply be enjoyed and marveled and wondered at. It's to be lived out as we love one another and as we love others around us. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. But what? Only faith working through love. That's all that matters. Oh, no, no man, nothing, they said. Don't owe them anything except love. It is love which characterizes our lives, love to be expressed in kindness to others, all of those around us, love to be expressed among the body of Christ and beyond in hospitality, welcoming people into our homes and lives, love lived out, displayed because we have been the recipients of so great a love. And Jesus says simply, this is how the world will know that we belong to him if we love one another so that he might so that we might love others and display his love is what Jesus is saying love lived out in every area of our lives secondly i remind you that it is a love that never fails never fails now this has always been the interesting question to me even this week as i was studying How do we understand this love in the midst of our suffering? This is the place where we're most often tempted to doubt his love for us, if we're honest. When we walk through times of great suffering, of doubt, confusion, pain, it's often then that we begin to question, where is God and does he still love me? When the ceilings proverbially are like brass and our prayers rise only that high, We wonder, has he stopped for some reason loving me? Many have been helpful for me this week as I was reading and studying. Thomas Manton, a wonderful Puritan writer, says this, Brambles are not pruned. That's the thorny stuff that we would typically just rip out. But it's vines that are pruned. God loved Christ in the lowest degree of his abasement, as much as any at any other time. Shall I desire to be otherwise beloved of God than Christ was? No. God's love may stand with sad suspensions of soul comforts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The natural son was in the love of God when at the worst. God loved him still, though he appeared to him with another face as the sun in the same when it shineth through red glass, only it casts a more bloody reflection. God had one son without sin, but none without suffering. 
God had one son without sin whom he never ceased to love. Even at his worst, he loved him, but he has no sons, no daughters without suffering. Again, I think it's helpful as we think of all of those who have spoken on these issues. It's helpful when we consider the reality of suffering that we experience in this world as those who follow Jesus, suffering of all kinds. How do we then square it, as Manton was telling us? How do we square it with the love of God? We simply look at the love of God for his son because Jesus told us the father loves us just as he loves the son. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, we know his love for the son. Remember that he loves you in exactly the same way. Whatever happens to us, whatever our circumstances, we are to be demonstrators of the love of God. God loved his son, and though it led him to be persecuted and tempted, though it led him to be scourged, though it led him to be crucified, God still went on loving him, and the son showed he was still being loved by the way he lived and died. And you and I are to live and die in that way that the world will look at us and say, what are these people? Look at them and their suffering and their agony. What enables them to be like this? And the answer is, it is the love which God has toward them. They know his love. They are feeding on it and they are being sustained by it. That is what God is doing. His love doesn't cease when we suffer, when we are persecuted. His love remains the same, even as it was true of Jesus. I noted as I sent out a note, a friend this week sharing with me the wonders of God's love to him as he walks through a very, very difficult time of pain and suffering that he so clearly knew and was being sustained by the love of God. You see, loving us as he loved Jesus does not mean that he will keep us from any suffering or pain in this life. It means that he will be with us in the midst of that pain and suffering with a love that never ends, a love that is perfect, that will meet us in the deepest places of our need. And so my friend spoke of it beautifully when he described it as being the sensation of being wrapped in the blanket of his love, fully surrounded and embraced. You see, that's the way God's love is. Even on the cruel cross, our Savior was never apart from the Father's love, and neither are we. And I might use that image to say that on the cross, our Savior was fully enveloped, and wrapped in the love of his father in ways that perhaps he had never known before because that is the love of God who shall then separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered Now, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that this morning? Do you really believe that the love that God has for you, as he does for his own son, will never, ever end? There are times in all of our lives where we will be confronted with that question. Can his love reach me here today where I am right now? Maybe your life experiences are so great and the bitter providences of life do darken your life, it seems, even for a moment to completely block out the love of Christ. That's when we must cry out with faith, no, such love never ends, never, even in the darkest of circumstances. I heard a great illustration from one writer as he wrote of, I believe, what is a true story. He didn't say, but I believe it was. A little girl and her family were trapped in a house fire. Only she survived, tragically. The scene then switched to the hospital where the neighbor comes to visit. The nurse who greets the neighbor, obviously not a Christian, says the little girl seems to be fine but she also seems to be stuck mentally. She's unstable. She's staring, not saying anything to anyone, and seems to be stuck singing just one song. As the two walk into the room, you can hear the little girl singing. You can probably guess the song. Jesus loves me. As the two enter, the nurse says, see, she's just stuck singing that one same song. To which the neighbor says, she is not stuck. She is clinging with everything she has to the one thing she has left and the one thing that will never be taken away. Maybe that's how you feel this morning in the midst of your suffering. Brother and sister, you can cling to this love. It will never end. It will never fail. You need not be discouraged. You need not fear that his love has failed. He will love you still because he loves his son and he will never stop loving his son. Finally, I want to give one final encouragement, and I think this comes really from Ephesians, but I think it bears true here. I don't know if you heard when I read the passage from Ephesians, this little phrase that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God in Christ. I believe those three words with all the saints are very important You see, the love of God that he has for us is so deep, so broad, so wide, so high that we can't fully comprehend it ourselves alone. We need our brothers and sisters around us to help us understand. It's a love, he says, that surpasses knowledge. And the only way we will grow in the knowledge of that love and the understanding of it is as we learn it together and as we walk together side by side, as we remind one another that he is faithful in the midst of my trial and my suffering, and that I know his love. It envelops me. It wraps me. What God says is true. As we share those stories with one another, as we read the stories of martyrs over the history of Christ's church, as we hear the accounts of so many who bear testimony and witness to the faithful, unending love of God in their lives, we will grow and our understanding of the depth, the height, the length, and the breadth of that love. 
I would even say tonight to our brother and sister who are going to share with us, as they share with us for 25 plus years of ministry and labor in Portugal, that we together will learn that our God is faithful no matter where we are, no matter what we go through, to love us and to love us still. We learn it as we share together with all the saints. Together we learn and grow in the knowledge of his love, that it really does envelop us. It really does hold us because what Jesus prayed for is worth knowing and resting in. You see, the game doesn't work with God. It's always, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And it's never, he loves me not. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to the end of these verses and to the end of our study. We pray that you would so impress upon us these truths that we might leave this place knowing that the love with which God has loved us, if we are truly in Jesus, is the same measure, same degree, the same love that he has loved and continues to love his only son. Help us to understand that more and more as we live this life together and as we learn more of the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of that love. We pray and ask this all with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.